Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all this morning. If you have a Bible, please open it to Peter's second letter. Uh, if you go all the way to the back and start flipping to your left, you'll find it uh, shortly before Revelation. And we are continuing this morning in our study of chapter 2, which if you were here last week, this is striking, alarming warning against false teachers and the nature of their teaching, who they are, and the judgment against them that is sure. Peter is writing this letter shortly before his death to exhort his audience, his recipients, very pastorally. You, you see his love for them come across in this letter, exhorting them to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's exhorting them and us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to make our calling and our election sure, to add to our faith, to supplement our faith with all these virtues and godliness that he supplies by the power of his spirit. And his aim in chapter 2 is to provide a photo negative of the enemy of your soul to this end. So here is this chapter 1 all about the proactive offensive measures you need to take for your faith. And then in chapter 2 he says, now here's the antagonist. Here is the enemy of your soul. You have these precious promises, but there are also false teachers who are putting in false gospels into circulation, and they would seek to lead you and those you love away from the true Christ and away from true faith. And so last week we saw an outline of these teachers sketched with ink, this first verses where we saw Peter take this pen and he starts giving us an outline of who these teachers are and what they're like. And then this week he begins to paint that picture and color it in with vivid colors and vivid metaphors so that you cannot miss who these men are and what their aims are. So if you're physically able, in honor of the reading of God's Word, stand to your feet. We're going to begin slightly overlapping where we were last week in verse 9 of chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 9 to the end. So he, he's just finished saying, if God did not spare the wicked who denied him, and if he rescued righteous Noah and righteous Lot, then in verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Now, remember, they despise all authority, but that's specifically here. It's, a, it's an echo of their despising of the authority of Christ and His Lordship. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. 
They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For, speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Let's pray. Father, these are hard words in a hard text, but they are rightly spoken, given to us by your Holy Spirit for our own warning, for our own sanctification and steadfastness in Christ. And so I pray that we would gladly submit ourselves to your word, to all of it, and that you would come and speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, may we hear what your Spirit is saying to your church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I wonder if you've ever heard of the Jefferson Bible, Thomas Jefferson's Bible. I know David Townsend has a copy of it, so I'll just go ahead and uh, tell you that uh, if you want to see a copy of this. But the third president of the United States was a deist and supposedly one who admired the teachings of Jesus Christ. He admired his teaching. He admired what he considered his philosophy. But the writers of the gospel accounts, however, he found to be untrustworthy. There was much in their accounts of Jesus' life and ministry that seemed to him to be contrary to reason. And so he set out on a project where he cut out what he considered to be sound teaching or philosophy, and the rest that he considered to be untenable or miraculous, he would leave in the book that he was cutting these passages out of to be discarded into the waste bin. He then pasted the selected text into a new book that he titled The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. We have a, uh, yeah, here's an example of the source text. So he's taking a razor blade and he's cutting out paragraphs that he likes. He's approaching God's word kind of like you would approach a buffet. Maybe not like some of you would approach the buffet. You take the whole thing. But some of you would, would go through and you're, you're picking out the parts that you like and you're leaving what is uh, not, taste, not tasteful right? The parts that you can't uh, tolerate. And so he would cut passages out of the source text and paste what he had as a, a new 
selected teachings of the life of Jesus. And it has come to be known as the Jefferson Bible. And you can see, yeah, a copy of this. Um, gone were the miracles of Jesus. And he left his teachings. So he left Christ crucified and also left him in the grave while he did not include the resurrection of Christ. Conveniently, leaving Christ in the grave and along with him all of his accountability to Christ as his judge. Now, in his own words, and this is important, he said that his intention was the result of a life of inquiry and reflection, and very different from that anti-Christian system imputed to me by those who know nothing of my opinions. Translation, he adapted the scriptures to his worldview and wanted to do it in a way that claimed he admired Christ and his teachings. He still was holding fast to Christ. It was just his highly edited version of him. And the teachers in our text today may not have used razor blades, but this is exactly what they are doing. Now, be mindful as we're talking about these men. These are teachers. So this is not just people that are going about and listening to teachers, and you're just interacting with them at work. These are men who have taken it on themselves to teach God's Word and twist it and cut parts and pieces out in order to fit their own desires. They are making war on God's Word and on the true Christ. And that's why Peter holds nothing back in his description of them. You can hear these vivid metaphors. I was telling David, when we talk about painting in this picture... Peter is not just like taking gentle brush strokes and making neat lines. He is taking buckets of paint and he is tossing it on so that you get these bright, vivid colors of who these false teachers are and what their true in intentions are. And these indictments come rapid fire piling up on top of each other. I counted 10 metaphors just from verse 12 on. Listen to these. They are irrational animals, creatures of instinct. They are themselves blots and blemishes, accursed children or children of cursing. They're waterless springs, mist driven by a storm, slaves of corruption, dogs and pigs. Those are just the word pictures. In other adjective language describing who they are, he describes them as ignorant blasphemers, deceivers, adulterers, enticers, liars, boasters, fools, empty promisers, born to be caught and destroyed and destined for outer darkness. If you hear somebody talking like this, you would say, well, tell us how you really feel, Peter, right? But this is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. This is what the Holy Spirit is saying about these men. It is no small thing to cause the way of Christ to be blasphemed and to cause those who would would-be followers of Christ, to lure them away from the true Christ and the true gospel. And so we're going to continue and pick up where we left off. Now, we had a really fruitful discussion last Monday night in our community group. And as we were talking and describing these false teachers and being on warning, like heeding the warning against them, we were also talking about being on guard against anything similar to them in ourselves. And we would do well to listen with that same vein this morning, that we would be heeding the warning against the false teachers who are out there 
and that we would be on guard against anything like them, however smaller in degree in here. And so we are going to pick up where we left off, and I'm not going to spend as long of a time rehashing some of the same things that we talked about last week. And so if you missed last week's sermon, it is online, and you can hear us talk through the first 10 verses of the text. But the first gleaning that I want to see this morning, and uh, it's really rehashing some of what we talked of last week, is that they themselves are shameless slaves of sin. Shameless in their own slavery to sin. I want to focus on two words, two concepts from uh, this first section of our text. The first is Peter says that they are bold and willful. Now, this language for bold and willful speaks to their spiritual arrogance that it actually means that they are self-important. They speak confidently and blasphemously about matters concerning which they are completely ignorant. They have an inflated view of their own importance, a very high opinion of themselves, and they, it's, it's like those kind that love the sound of their own voice. So they have, like Jefferson before them, but maybe in less conspicuous ways, exalted themselves above God and His Word as the judge of His Word. And they speak ignorantly, but very confidently, with a high view of themselves against God's true word and his true gospel. So in our call to worship, we heard language like, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things from the Psalms. You got God's love, his faithfulness, his steadfastness, and he says, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. And in our reading of the law, David talked about God prophesying, I'm going to send you a prophet like Moses, and it's to him you shall listen. These men don't listen to God's prophet or his anointed. They listen to themselves. They don't attend to God's word. They attend to their own voice and their own musings about God. It says, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So you got to see this picture. These, these false teachers are like worms before heaven, shouting loud boasts, completely foolish in what they're talking about. This language about blaspheming the glorious ones, that there's two possible interpretations. Maybe there's more than that, but two tenable ones, I believe. One is that they are blaspheming supernatural powers, so people would cross-reference into Jude and say they're actually speaking against demonic powers in verse 10, whereas angels who are purer in moral and in character who are sinless don't even presume to do the same thing. They wouldn't even talk about uh, demons in that way, but they would say, the Lord rebuke you. That's one possible interpretation. But the word glorious ones in verse 10 is actually just glories. And so I think uh, probably more, more likely is that they are blaspheming against the glories of God. Specifically, we're going to see that they, 
they dismiss the possibility of the second coming of Christ. But every other place in 2 Peter where glory is mentioned, it's referring to the glory of God. Three times in chapter 1 or one time in chapter 3, these glories are referring to the glory of God in Christ. And so they don't tremble as they blaspheme the glories of God, even though angels don't even presume to slander or blaspheme them for their blasphemy. So regardless of the, the specific meaning of this, the point is not on what their form of blasphemy is, but for us to be watchful against men like this who would have an inflated view of their own spiritual significance and their authority and their power, and they do not submit themselves to God and to His Word. They are self-important and willful. The second is that they are self-indulgent. So they are self-important, slaves to themselves, but they're also self-indulgent, which is what it means by their revelry. So look with me at verse 12. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is a wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts that are trained in greed. Accursed children. Peter would later say that these men have forsaken the way of righteousness, that they, they did have a form of professing faith in Jesus that results in being cleaned up on the outside where it looked like they had come out of the ways of the world, but they then became entangled again. They became enslaved again to the defilements or the pollutions of the world. And so money and sex and power, the praise of men, are everything to these men, and they have an insatiable desire for them. They're without restraint. In fact, their only restraint is not from any kind of fear of God, but just to prolong their wickedness. They want to guise themselves as sheep, wolves in sheep's clothing, so that they can devour the sheep, not because they have any real desire for godliness. They just want to be able to go on in their revelries, in their self-indulgence, and continuing them without people... Uh, being aware of what they're doing. This term for reveling is really synonymous with verse 10 and them indulging in the lust of defiling passion. This revelry is referring to this kind of self-indulgent luxury that results in you becoming a kind of soft person. You, you are actually enfeebled or weakened by your own self-indulgence. I think about this proverb that he refers to at the end of the chapter, this dog returning to its vomit. You can imagine the health of a dog as he goes for his nutrition to his own vomit. And that is the picture of what these men are doing is that they are self-indulgent, but what they are feasting on 
it's actually killing them and making them less of a, a person. It's affecting their constitution. It's making them weak and soft. I think the, the language, men without conviction. And our text says that they revel in the daytime. So in other places of Scripture, it says those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Those who do what is evil, they, they do it under the guise of night. But these are so arrogant, so bold and willful that they are pursuing their own self-indulgence in broad daylight in front of everyone, and they're using the Scripture to justify their self-indulgence. In Hebrews 5, writer of Hebrew describes, write, the writer of Hebrews describes the mature in Christ as having powers of discernment that they have grown in because they've They've trained them by constant practice to discern good from evil. They've actually become trained in discernment because you're practicing the discernment all the time that this muscle is growing strong and you're able to discern good from evil. These men are the very antithesis of that. All of their training, all of their practice is not in discernment but in greed and in lust and in gaining the approval of people. And so rather than having their hearts grow strong with discernment and being able to discern good from evil, they have completely blended them, unable to see the difference in reveling in what is evil in the, day, in the daylight with no conscience. They have seared their conscience by delighting in what is evil for so long. They have no guilt, no discernment, no conviction. They follow their instincts and their desires like animals, just following whatever they feel like creatures of instinct. <clears throat> and here it says that as they feast with you, that they are, have hearts that are insatiable for sin and full of greed. So these are men who are still gathering in the church. In the early church, they would have love feasts. It would be the Lord's Supper, but a full meal together. And they would be there just looking for opportunities to prey on women or to gain money from teaching the flock concerning, we'll get to it in a moment, why God's grace means that they then had a license for sin. So if you look at how Jude describes these false teachers and how Peter describes them here, that's what they're doing, seeking to exploit them with false words, using them for their own gain, using them so that they can satisfy their own pleasures. And the best way to do that is to teach them that the grace of God is a means for license so that they will then join with them in their revelry. Jude says that they're shepherds feeding themselves. They're not feeding the flock, not giving them a, diet, a steady diet of the pure, untainted word of God. They are what Paul would say, men who tamper with God's word so that they could get the flock to join them in feeding themselves. <clears throat> when Peter describes them as blots and blemishes, he's saying they are embodying 
the very sin that in chapter 3 he says, make, be diligent to be found by Christ without blot or blemish and at peace. So this is the same language. They are actually the embodiment of the impurity and the sin that we are called to put off as we pursue holiness and the fear of God and wait for his coming. It says, those who have their hope fixed on him purify themselves just as he is pure. And these men represent and embody the very impurities that we're called to put off as we wait for the appearing of our Lord Jesus. This self-indulgence, this reveling in the daytime is like the last verse of Romans 1. Romans 1 verse 32 says, Though these people know that God's righteous decree know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. All manner of immorality and homosexuality and theft and murder and slander. He says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice these things deserve to die. They not only do them themselves, but they give approval to those who practice them. So they are themselves shameless slaves of sin, but they also entice unsteady souls. They do this in a celebration of sin, the toleration of it, and they use Scripture to get there. That language of they entice unsteady souls comes directly from verse 14, but we can continue on. Verse 15 says that they forsake the right way and they have gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These false teachers, who are like Balaam, are waterless springs, mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. So, reminder, these are men who have forsaken the right way. They knew the way of Christ. They knew God's righteous decree. They They heard of the cross. They made a response to the gospel. They professed faith in Christ. They walked an aisle. They prayed a prayer. They maybe even got baptized. Were cleansed from the ways of the world for a season. But perhaps they were themselves enticed away by false teachers teaching a false gospel. And now they entice others. So I want to, in this section of the text, talk to you about Balaam's way in Peter's day and a way of Balaam in our day. So Peter refers to Balaam, this prophet who Balak of Moab hired to curse Israel. You can read about his story in Numbers God kept intervening as this king of Moab had hired this false prophet to come and curse the people of Israel. 
And God tells him very clearly, do not go up with him. And Balaam plays this game that you and I are not immune from or are strangers to, where we think we heard the voice of God, but we're not sure, so we're just going to push on it a little bit. So he says, wait, can I not go up? So God gives him over to him playing the game. He says, go up. And along the way, the angel of the Lord stands in his way, and Balaam and his traveling companions cannot see the angel of God. But the donkey sees the angel. And so three different times, you see the donkey turn away, and Balaam's super ticked off at the donkey. And so then it happens again. And the last time, there's nowhere for the donkey to turn. The donkey lies down underneath him, and Balaam describes wanting to kill the donkey for its insolence. The donkey, with the human voice, says, I've been your donkey your whole life. Have I ever acted like this? I've got a reason for it. And then the angel of the Lord shows up, and he says, I have found your way to be perverse before me, that you have gone outside of what I clearly showed you. So Balaam, you would think, it's like, man, I've been so foolish. I need to turn back. He says, okay, so are you saying not to go up? Or can I still go up and just only say what you want me to say? So God, again, lets him do what he wants to do in his flesh. And so he goes up. And each time Balaam sets out to curse the people of Israel for Balak, God puts a word of blessing in his mouth instead. Now, he is, you would, if you're reading numbers, you don't have the commentary of the New Testament looking back on it, you might think, wow, Balaam really changed. I mean, he was like setting out to curse these people and he's just blessing them instead. But he is the picture in the word of God of false teachers who love gain from wrongdoing. He was setting out willing to do what is wrong for the sake of money. He was a prophet for hire. And so he made his money. And he was unable to curse the people of God. And Numbers 31 says that, in verse 16, says that Balaam advised Balak, the king of Moab, to send among the men of Israel women who would entice them into sexual license. And that text says that they, those Moabite women caused the men of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord, and they began to worship their gods. The, the way into, so he, he tried to come in from this higher level and curse them from this mountaintop looking down, and God would not let him. So he subversively went another way and said, all right, here's how you can get to them. Here's how you can lead them away from this worship of the one true God. You send among them these licentious women and through their desires, you can entice them away and they will begin to worship the gods of Moab. These false teachers follow Balaam's same way. They love gain from wrongdoing, however they can get it. They mute the voice of God when God clearly tells them how they ought to speak, what the true gospel is, and so he gives them over. The professional ministers, they lure people away from the true worship of God through their desires. This is what it means by they entice by sensual passions. Literally, that word for entice is they bait them. 
I know we've got some fishermen in the room, right? The whole goal of bait is to make it look so enticing, so appealing, mimicking what is true and real so that it looks like the real thing. That is what is happening with the false teachers. They are not just saying something that is so, sometimes they do say something that is so clearly heretical. And at other times, they bait you by using Scripture, sprinkling Scripture on top of heresy so that you go, I don't know, he believes, believes the Bible. He's using the Bible to teach, still talking about Jesus. He believes that Jesus raised from the dead. I've heard him talk about it before. He just teaches a little bit differently than how, than how we've heard it here at Rivertown, but they're still, like, they still teach the Bible. So, the design is to look convincing. So that, as Paul said to the Ephesian elders, they want to draw away the disciples after them. And so, they appeal to what you feel and what you want. That's what it means by sensual pleasures. Sensual is what you feel, and your pleasures is what you want. So, they will come alongside you and stroke your feelings and what you want. Their preaching is all about you. It's about you finding your purpose, finding your identity, your blessing, your prosperity, your feelings of God's presence. They appeal to people's love of themselves and their flesh, and they give them Christianity without a cross. So there's lots of messaging about how Christ died for you and the benefits of all that he's done for you, but nothing of how you have died with him. Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. If you want to save your life, let's lose it here. If you seek to save your life here, you'll lose it in eternity. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? These false teachers say, Thomas Jefferson, that text out of here. You can have your soul and this life. Beloved, do not tolerate teaching that makes much of you instead of desiring and craving teaching that makes much of Christ. That God loves us says infinitely more about him than it says about you. You need to hear this. The, one of the ways that this teaching looks is look at how much God loves you and how valuable you are because of Christ dying for you, because there's something so intrinsically wonderful about you. God's love shouts to us that from the cross that he loves us. But it says infinitely more about his mercy and his kindness and his grace than it does about your intrinsic value or worth. It shows us how heinous sin is, the cross does, and how holy God is, that it would actually take the death of God to reconcile you to himself. So the cross at the same time shows you how massive God's love is and how holy he is and how sinful you are that it would take that to draw us to himself. What people need is not more affirmation about themselves. 
but to look away from themselves to Christ. So all of this teaching that is guised as evangelical, seeker-friendly, it is designed to give people what they want and to help them feel what they want to feel and to not give them the holiness of God and the clarity of what Scripture actually teaches about what genuine saving faith looks like because that might actually cost them people in the seats who give and they have hearts trained in greed. And so they won't do it. They'll shy away from the true teaching of Scripture of a genuine cost of discipleship so that they can continue to draw crowds and we'll start to get into real meat in our, in our small groups, which never happens. So these teachers in this day twist Paul's writings, Peter would later say, and use them to promise people freedom. So this is what the baiting and enticing would look like. You could take texts like Galatians 5.1. It says that they promised them freedom, right? But they themselves are slaves of corruption. So here's what that would look like. You come to a seminar at the church, at the second church at Corinth, and they say, look at this letter to the Galatians. It says here, it's for freedom. Christ has set us free. So stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. And so you are free. Christ's freedom is real, and he has freed you from all kinds of considerations that would make you feel guilty, all kinds of the idea of sin. God loves you. He's dealt with that at the cross. You don't throw off all these things that make you feel guilty and bad. That's, those are people who are preaching legalism and rules, and the Holy Spirit is all about freedom, which your answer should be yes. The Holy Spirit does set us free into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. He sets us free from sin's penalty, praise God, from the guilt of sin, and He sets us free right now, setting us free from sin's power. He does. But the freedom that He gives is always a freedom into the life of Christ. It's a freedom from being slaves to sin in order that you might become slaves to God. It is not a freedom that gives you an autonomy of yourself where you can be the king of your own life. If the Son has set us free, then we will be free indeed. These men promised a different kind of freedom. Freedom from cares, freedom from rules, freedom from the legalism of your childhood, freedom from the fear of punishment or the righteous judgment of God. But they are empty promises from a different Christ into a false freedom. That's what they're promising. They're promising them freedom. <laughs> you know, all this talk about judgment or obedience is such stiff language. And the Spirit has set us free, so just walk by the Spirit and you have to think about it. I read on a discussion board of all these people, and we'll talk in a second about this Balaam's way in our day, these people talking about they come out from the, this kind of stiff version of evangelicalism that holds fast to God's Word, which is so littered with errors. And if you have the Holy Spirit, you don't need any kind of writing. It's free. That is not. If, if, if the Holy Spirit that you think you have has led you into a freedom 
that does not lead and guide you into all the truth of God's Word and doesn't remind you of the things that Jesus taught, if the Spirit does not lead you to, by Him, put to death the deeds of the body, then you have a different spirit. So they, they preach verses like, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free and stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. But they, they Thomas Jefferson, write out the last verse of that same chapter. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So our church needs to know that God's grace is full and free and real in Christ. But that grace doesn't set you free from the lordship of Christ. That grace is always meant to enable you to obey him. That is what the grace of God is for. He brings you out of a slavery to yourself and your own self-indulgence, and he sets you free into being slaves of righteousness. And John writes, his commandments are not burdensome. He actually commands us to fly and then gives us wings. That's what his grace is like. So one of Balaam's ways in our day is our text says that these men have forsaken the way of righteousness and they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, but they were again entangled in them and overcome. Now, we know from very clear teaching all over God's word that he is not saying that you can lose your salvation. He's not saying that these people were genuinely converted and born again to a new and a living hope by the resurrection of Christ from the dead and given the Holy Spirit of God only to lose him because they became entangled again in the world. That is not what he is teaching. He is saying that there are those who would profess a faith in Christ. It would look like they repented. It would look like they claimed Christ. Maybe they even got baptized. Maybe they went on with the church for a while. Jesus talked about this in the parable of the soils. This sapling sprang up with joy. And then the enemy comes and snatches it away. Or later, the cares of this world come and choke out the seed that was sown. And these false teachers are like those who would either come and snatch up the seed or they would sow thorns because of their greed, because of their self-indulgence, so that it would choke out the word of those who were not truly repentant and had not placed their trust in Christ, a trust that was marked by surrender to his lordship, to his kingship in our lives. And so some would go on for a time before the cares of the world come and choke out the, the word. We are seeing this all the time. It gets press in Christian news, in the news in the world. The world eats it up. When somebody prominent has some kind of I'm not a Christian anymore deconversion or deconstruction or whatever they are calling it, and it gets more press when it's somebody famous, when it's an influencer, when it's somebody like Joshua Harris who pastored a church and then had written a book that was very prominent for a lot of purity culture. I kissed dating goodbye, and then he kissed Jesus goodbye later. And for, for the world, it was like, yes, we've got another example 
of somebody who realized that Jesus is not really the Son of God and he's not worthy of their worship and they, the name of Christ is blasphemed in the world. But this kind of walking away from Christ is happening every day. So I want to alert you to it as the church and as parents because some of the reasons why people give for deconstructing or deconverting actually could have been addressed along the way if you know kind of the, the arc of their stories and how this normally happens. So I would read over and over again, and you see some of these kind of common threads in people's stories. Either the substance wasn't real at home or at the church they attended. So, so one thing was being proclaimed with the mouths of parents or in the church, and another thing was being experienced in the home. Or they had doubts or questions that went unanswered or were dismissed out of hand. I was so blessed. One of the parents in our church was talking about great questions that their children were asking. And instead of becoming fearful or scared that they're asking questions, they're saying, let's study that together. And, let's, and then asking pastors for a good resource for how they could shepherd their child's hearts through real doubts and real questions. That is faithfulness. Some of these kids grow up and turn away because they said, I asked questions and I was always just told just to have faith and it, nobody ever truly dealt with my questions. And so I just figured there was no good answers. Maybe they were unprepared for suffering or for trials. They encountered some great difficulty and they didn't have a theology of suffering and how God uses suffering in our lives or how sin has broken the world and so they... They just turned away from God because they couldn't reconcile the concept of God's goodness with their present experience, and so they turned away from God. Maybe they encountered questions in college or elsewhere that they were unprepared to answer. Or as they began to live long enough in the darkness of the world, the righteousness of Christ seemed too bright. You ever been to a matinee movie? where you've been in the dark for so long and then you walk outside and it seems so harsh. The light seems so harsh to your eyes. And that's what happens. Kids go off to college or they get away from the church, they get away from the word and they live in the darkness for so long and then they come back and it seems God's righteousness seems so harsh, so bright. Or they were unprepared to prize God's holiness and to understand the cross and the need for the cross and what it does in the face of the onslaught of all this messaging about the LGBTQ people and it being a human rights issue and them seeing all the historic sexual, biblical orthodoxy concerning sexuality to be narrow-minded and needing to be Change so that the heart of what God meant is kept while we change what he actually said. You can also track kind of the progression of this journey from one former pastor's kid turned atheist. I think it's very typical. He said, it first started when I started doubting the sovereignty of God. Then the next to go was biblical authority. And the inerrancy of Scripture, and if Scripture can really be trusted, then after that, I became a universalist. Because now that Scripture was out the door, I could kind of move things around and, and work things so that 
how could a loving God actually send people to hell? So that, that can't be right either. So he moved another step. And then the next thing he knew, he was conducting marriages for so-called marriages for gay people. And then the last thing to go was a belief in the bodily resurrection of Christ. It is this digression away from Christ and the true gospel. And it starts with the enemy sowing doubts, just one little thing at a time. Did God really say all these things that you've really heard about God being sovereign? Could that really be true? How can you reconcile that with what your experience is, with what you can see? And so people interpret Scripture or change Scripture in a Jeffersonian kind of way in light of shifting cultures and morals in the world rather than speaking to culture from the unshifting ground of God's truth. Liberalism, so-called Christian liberalism, sees Christ as more of an idea than a person. You have to deal with a person. You can just extract the principles of Christ from his person like Jefferson did, and you're left with this really nice, loving, kind teaching. You just cut out everything he ever taught about hell, everything he ever taught about his righteousness or his holiness, and you cut out the, even the need for the cross. And what you're left with is language like, I still love Jesus, but I've learned he's so much more open and his love is bigger and more comprehensive and inclusive than I could ever have imagined. It sounds so nice. It sounds like this version of Jesus we created, if you like the version of Jesus that you had in your childhood, you'll love the one that we've created. And if you hated the one from your childhood, maybe it's different than what you always heard. All those rules, those harsh people, all those hypocrites. Come into the light and see this bigger, more inclusive, kinder, humbler Jesus. And the world has made it, the, the the culture of the world right now is the only major way that you can actually sin is to actually believe something so strongly as to say it is the truth. That is the only thing that's offensive in the world. We get offended by everything, but at the end of the day, what is offensive in the world is for you to say there is one God to whom we are accountable. There is one way to that one God, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is, like we said last week, no mercy for the wicked outside of that one way. But he is offering full and free forgiveness on the basis of his sacrifice and what he has done in making atonement by his blood. God has raised him from the dead, and he is offering forgiveness and freedom and life in his name to any who would repent of their sins and place their trust in him. Come. While there's opportunity, while the door is open. And so we go with the message of truth, but the challenge for you in the face of false teachers who are constantly circulating false gospels is for you to declare the truth of God's word in a way that seems dogmatic and narrow to them. But you're not stating it just as a matter of personal opinion. The word of God is not your personal opinion. You can trust it. You can delight in it. It can become more necessary to you than your food. It can become a delight to you more than gold, fine gold, and sweeter to you than honey, like the psalmist talks about. And then you declare it with boldness, which is how we ought to speak, and you will be persecuted and ostracized 
mainly by people who have created a different Christ. Are you going to know the real Christ? Are you going to be able to know in, against the onslaught of bait and enticing that sounds so convincing when you start to doubt yourself as you get away from God's word and you start to doubt what you've believed? Maybe I have been overly narrow. Maybe Christ's love is big enough to have changed over time what it looks like today. These people, Paul says, are enemies of the cross of Christ. They despise his cross in their own life as they are slaves to their own appetites, and they despise the cross of Christ in their messaging to the world. They promote self, they promote neighbor, but not the true Christ. And he says in this text, they have they have tried the Lord of heaven and found him wanting. They found him wanting. And so that is the last point, and I'm going to fly through this. It would be better for them and their followers to have never known the way. That is a shocking statement. You think about how glorious and beautiful Christ is. To it actually be better for somebody to have never heard the name of Christ than to have heard it. But it is because they began with Christ and then rejected him for their own passions and pleasures. And so that's how Peter ends this chapter. They've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They went and became part of a church and they were pure for a while. They gave up old habits and addictions for a while. They, they stopped their adulterous ways for a while. They started coming underneath orthodoxy for a little bit. But then they again were entangled in their own ways, old ways and overcome. Then the last state has become worse for them than the first. It would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness or Christ than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. This is a principle that is consistent throughout God's word. You can look at Chorazon, Bethsaida, Capernaum, Judas, these false teachers, or you. If you have more light and more revelation, you are more accountable to respond to the revelation that you have. That's why Jesus would look at the towns where he did these many mighty works, and he said, it will be more tolerable in hell for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for you. Because I came to you and it was so clear and you rejected me. For Judas, it would be better if he had not been born than to have known Christ and walked with Christ and then out of love of money and love of himself to betray him. And it is the same for these false teachers. This, he ends with this proverb saying, the dog returned to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. He's saying what we've already said. This is not true believers losing their salvation. These are dogs and pigs who are continuing to be what they never stopped being. They cleaned up on the outside for a little while. The pig cleaned itself up on the outside for a little while. And they went on with the church for a little while. But after some time, they returned to wallow in the mud to be who they never really stopped being. 
says, the Apostle John says, they go out from the church because they were never truly of us, never truly born again. And so what do we do with this? How do we conclude? A.W. Tozer said, the word of God, well understood and religiously obeyed, is the shortest route to spiritual perfection. He's not saying you can be perfect in this life. He's saying as we pursue holiness in the fear of God and we are pursuing perfection out of love for God and honor of Christ, the word of God well understood and religiously obeyed is the shortest route to spiritual perfection. We must not select a few favorite passages to the exclusion of others. Nothing less than a whole Bible can make a whole Christian. This is where we left off in chapter 1. So Eric preached to us about the revelation of God and the inspiration of the Scriptures and how we would do well to pay attention to all the Scriptures as to a lamp shining in a dark place. That it is through these precious promises that we become partakers of the divine nature. And Peter in this whole letter is exhorting people, don't be led astray by the error of lawless men. Don't fall away from your own steadfastness, but be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ as you sink your faith down deep into the Scriptures. This word is a fuel for your faith. If your faith is like a flickering flame, it can withstand any darkness, and it can withstand any storm and any wind as long as you have the fuel of God's Word that is giving it life. You get away from the light of God's word and all of a sudden the darkness starts to look not as dark anymore. Your eyes get adjusted. Has that ever happened to you before? You, you get in a really dark space. If you're there for long enough, your eyes will adjust. All of a sudden you can see better in the dark and you think maybe that flashlight isn't as necessary. You would do well to pay attention to the word of God as to a lamp shining in a dark place. And it takes the whole Bible, not just parts that we cherry pick out. We are not like Thomas Jefferson who would take and cut and paste our favorite parts and pieces and then leave out the parts that are harder for us to digest. But we take all of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word and delight in it. And so my, my exhortation to us is for us to like Peter says, to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus here so that all the swirling talk of self-love and of using grace as a license for sin sounds to you as heretical as it is. When you hear teaching or preaching that promotes grace as a kind of license for sin or pumps you up and preaches concerning you instead of concerning Christ, that you would say, no way. I'm giving myself to the Word and to the exaltation of Christ through the Word. And so parents and as a church as a whole, let's create space where people can actually ask real questions and express real doubts and they're met with real love, real compassion, and real answers from a sufficient Word. That we don't need to be scared of people's doubts or concerns because there is 
There are real answers in a real Christ. And we need to study to show ourselves approved. And we are going to give ourselves fresh to the preaching of the word here on Sunday mornings, but also to the discussion of God's word and going deeper together in our community groups. We're going to roll out trainings either on Sunday mornings or Sunday nights so that you can know and trust the sufficiency of Scripture so we can go deeper into sound doctrine and theology so that you have the ability to give an answer to those who ask you and to train your children and to share Christ with your friends in a way that is full and winsome and bold and stands on truth, not tampering with God's Word like these false teachers whose judgment is just So in a day when many, many are falling away. Remember from last week, Jesus said many will fall away. False teachers who bait disciples are going to be successful with some who have claimed Christ but don't truly know him. And so the Lord Jesus looks at us like he has over the last couple of months and says, will you go away from me too? And our answer must be, to where else will we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. I'm going to give myself afresh to Christ and his gospel, to delighting in his grace. He really has set me free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, but he sets me free into an obedience. And so I'm going to pursue holiness and the fear of God in the community of the church. I'm going to give myself afresh to the Lord Jesus. And I want to give myself afresh to making him known so that our voice as a church is counteracting and winning in the world against the false teachings that are swirling out there. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us without a witness, without a warning concerning false teachers and the way that they deceive and entice unsteady souls. And so my main prayer this morning is that our church would be steady with the steadfastness of Christ, that we would give heed to your word and that your word would dwell richly in us and that we would not be easily deceived. Lord, where there are questions, give people courage to press into those and ask and to find answers in your sufficient word that we build our lives upon the words of the living Christ. Please, Lord, build our church up in our most holy faith and help us to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. In Jesus' name, amen.